The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, where you can see it in your bulletin. This is the great chapter on the resurrection. And Tim Keller has this quote that he uses a lot, and it goes like this. Listen up, children. He says, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. How can those both statements, how can they both be true? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. How can they both be true? What do you think? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters, meaning whatever comes your way. When you get the call from the doctor, when you get the bad news, when your sins feel like they have beaten you down, when perfectionism is driving and shame is riding shotgun, as Benet Brown says, you're able to kick both of them out of the car because Jesus rose from the dead and you have a new driver and a new Lord and new news. And this so radically turned the world upside down. And we're gonna look at those over the next few weeks together. And we'll look at how for Peter, who had denied the Lord three times, and it says the third time he denied him in Luke, that Jesus and Peter made eye contact before that third cock crowing. And you can imagine Peter's look and Jesus' look as they looked at each other and made eye contact that Jesus had told him this would happen. And when the angel spoke to Mary, what did she say? Go and tell the disciples, and Peter, make sure you get him. He's gonna need to hear this good news that if Jesus Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And imagine for Mary, she had been with Jesus ever since she'd had these demons driven out of her. And she loved Jesus. She was the most loyal to Jesus, though all would abandon him, not Mary, She got little sleep that night and she came before dawn and she came to that tomb and she's just distraught. And she wants to know from that gardener, where have you put him? I will go get him myself. I will carry him. Just tell me where you put him. And the gardener was who? Was Jesus. And Jesus just said one word, Mary, Mary. And instantly she knew the personal voice, she knew Jesus is risen. Amazing. How about Thomas? Thomas was so distraught, so upset, so disappointed that when they told him, we've seen the Lord, he's been raised. (laughs) Come on, guys. There's just too much pain and sorrow there. Not going there. That's like the news you get when somebody calls and they tell you you're, you're going to win some great thing. You're like, yeah, I've been there. You hang that phone up before you even finish. You get that email, you delete it. 
right? You get that, that, that text message, you get rid of that thing because won't get fooled again. I've been there. Tom is not even, I don't even want to hear it. Don't even tell me about this Jesus unless I can stick my hand in his side and, and reach out and touch those wounds. I'll have nothing to do with it because it was just too painful for him to think through what he had seen in the crucifixion, seen his Lord die. He didn't want to go through that again until Jesus showed up and told him, Thomas, stick your hands here. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. If Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. But the flip side is Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. Meaning, what difference does it make? Do whatever you want, half hour you're going to die from now. Do whatever you want. Does that kind of take away the pleasure? Life is just exceedingly short. And if you know that you're out of here so quickly, life all of a sudden becomes ex exceedingly trivial. Why are we here? And look what Christ has done. He has punched a hole into, through death, through naturalism, through relativism, and said there is a Lord and there is somebody that we will all have to give an account to. Years ago, well, I've been, I've been through college, been through seminary, and, I, and there was a guy that I went to college with and then actually took some seminary classes with them, and he had an unbelieving wife. And we'll get to the text in a second, but he, um, so he, he had this unbelieving wife, and we had prayed for her and her name, and he cheated on his wife, the church, that he was attending, Dis, uh, disciplined him. He was excommunicated from the church. He was unrepentant. He divorced his unbelieving wife and he married the beautiful woman that he was having the affair with and she was much younger, prettier Christian woman. And now he's a missionary on the mission field in South America with the new babe. And uh, he, it's all pretty tragic in my opinion, but he was influenced heavily by the emerging church, which if you remember, emerged and has gone now. But uh, there was a big emphasis on the kingdom and a lack of emphasis on doctrine. And one day I was friends with him on Facebook and he just wrote on Facebook, hearing all these different things about the gospel. He, he just wrote, what, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Here's a guy I went to Bible classes with, seminary classes, and he's he basically saying there's so many people out there telling you different things. I don't what what is the gospel? So I replied back, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what I put on his Facebook page. That's the simplistic explanation, clearest 
gospel message right there for us. But he goes on. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray together. Lord, may we believe, and may we see why this is good news, the best news that could ever come to us to fix the biggest problem that we will ever deal with. Sin death and hell and we thank you that we have the victory in our lord jesus christ and we pray that we would see that this life is not in vain and we ask that you would open up our hearts now and i pray for help lord in making the gospel clear and doing so in love grace and truth in jesus name amen What is the gospel? I want to answer that question this morning. The gospel is this word euangelion, which means good news. And in Paul's day, there wasn't this distinction between hard news and soft news. And that's kind of a a big thing these days. And and, um, Keller talks a lot about that as well. But the idea of soft news is that there's all kinds of things that come to us that, are, that we just kind of quickly move on from. There's soft news that, you know, we actually discover that, that drinking some coffee is actually not bad for you. It's actually pretty good for you. You know, that's, that's soft news. You know, soft news is you find out certain things are, are basically they're infomercials, and yet they're on the news, and they're little sound bites. Well, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, there wasn't such a thing as, as soft news. There wasn't advertising. There wasn't like commercials that would be on the radio pitching something or there wouldn't be advertisements on TV and there certainly wasn't Facebook advertisements that were popping up on your screen. There wasn't anything like that. There was just hard news and hard news was facts and these facts are things that are happening in the world. And often they have great bearing upon you where people have gotten hurt or people have gotten killed. Hard news would be like an earthquake, a government shutdown, an airplane crash, a national security breach, a hurricane, a tsunami. Those kinds of things are hard news. And in Paul's day, the people were used to this idea of euangelion, of good news. You're familiar with the Battle of Marathon. And everybody wants to know, are we going to be enslaved? Are we going to win this battle? Are we going to lose this battle? And the Battle of Marathon, this jogger runs 26.2 miles to give the euangelion. And what was the good news? We won the battle. And then he dropped dead. The Battle of Marathon. That's hard news. Well, here's the reality is that this good news is being declared, this euangelion, is that this is news. 
This is true, true news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Now, listen, it's hard news, but there are some soft news implications. You know, I could tell you that, you know, if you have Jesus, you're gonna have less anxiety. You're gonna sleep better. Those are, you know, all kinds of implications. This is the, this is the key that will unlock hope and joy and peace and all the other fruits of the Spirit will come about from believing this truth. But first of all, we must recognize that the gospel is hard news. It's good news. It's true news of something that you must receive. Look what Paul says. He says, verse one, I want you to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. This is important for us. The gospel is something received, not achieved. It's not your achievement. Did you see anything in the first 11 verses about your achievement? Because we think about, oh, I gotta come to church this morning. And, and, and we're gonna come to prayer. And we start to think about, well, what, how have I done this week? Is my prayer gonna be heard? Have I had my quiet times? Have I, have I been doing? How, how's my achievements? We are such an achievement-oriented culture. This is not an achievement that you did. Jesus achieved for you. He did everything. And so this is not about our achievement. I quoted earlier Benet Brown who said that when perfectionism is driving, that shame is riding shotgun. And the idea is why are we so perfection oriented? Isn't it something that goes back to the fall and we cover ourselves up and we're still trying to cover, and we cover ourselves with busyness. I shared the story some years ago when Kim was in the Kentlands, and she saw this little girl, young elementary school girl in her leotard, leotards, and yet she had a violin in her hand, and her mother was yelling, run, 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 because she was late for her violin appointment after she had just come out of her dancing lesson, and yet now she's got to run to the next thing because it's achievement, achievement. Achievement. And it was sad to see this poor child trying to live up to mom's expectations of her. Houston, we have a problem. And the problem we all have is sin. And we're all trying to deal with that. Mark Twain once said, human beings are the only ones who blush. And it's true. My dog has a little bit of shame. I can't understand that exactly, but it's not really blushing. I mean, she, she will get any, any type of food when we're not there. I hope we shut the door because the trash can was full before I left, and I think I forgot to turn it around backwards, and I'll come home, and trash is on the floor. She'll find, she'll just take a whole box of cereal, and, and now she just kind of darts for the basement. She knows she's done wrong. So Mark Twain, though, this, this statement, though, are human beings are the only ones who blush. And the idea is that we all have this. It's universal. It's shame, guilt, and because of that, we have this problem, this barrier between us and God that we know we've blown it, that we've been made in his image to honor him, and we've all done things that are dishonorable. And yet this gospel is good news. It's good news because it's something received, not achieved. You could never achieve it. 
You'd never be good enough. You will never be good enough. You will never be busy enough, never be perfect enough. So how are you going to get this? Well, our worship service began with a jolt. Do you remember how it started? Our worship service began with, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our, our own way. But that's not the end of the story. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the gospel is good news received because Jesus died for our sins. And this word for is one of the most pregnant words in the Bible. This word, Greek word, huper, has the idea of substitution. It is the concept of substitution. That Jesus himself substituted himself to pay a debt that we could never pay. He died the death that we should have died John Stott in his classic definition on the concept of sin said this, the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That's the idea of substitution. And the apostle wants us to know, apostle Paul wants to know, of first importance is Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Paul roots these two most important events, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, he, he roots them in the scriptures first and then in history as historical fact. Do you see that? Everybody looking at your scriptures, you see that. And so if you, you, it's probably good to ask yourself, well, if Paul is saying this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and back then they didn't have New Testament scriptures yet, so what scriptures is he referring to? Can you think of any passages? We looked at Isaiah 53. Can you think of any passages? Maybe we could just listen to a couple of these. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They will look on me whom they have pierced, quoted in the New Testament as fulfilled at the cross. Next chapter, Zechariah 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes that as he's going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Daniel 9, 26 says that an anointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah, shall be cut off and have nothing, the cross. And certainly, in, in Isaiah 53, we're told that he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. 
and by his stripes we are healed. And Paul says the same thing about his resurrection, that he rose according to the scriptures. Well, where is that in the Bible? Where in the Old Testament are we told of Jesus' resurrection? Well, we read this morning in our call to worship from Isaiah 53, did you see a reference to the resurrection? Look at, your, look at your bulletin again. Look at that first passage of Scripture from Isaiah 53. Because it says this. It says he was cut off from the land of the living, verse 8. Verse 9, it says they made a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And the rich man was Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, no deceit was in his mouth, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, put him to, to death. That all doesn't sound good, does it? It's all about his death. But when his soul makes an offering for sin, look at these three things. He shall see his offspring. Can dead people see? He shall prolong his death. Do, do dead people have long days? And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, how can you do those things unless it screams one thing? It screams resurrection, that he sees his offspring. He's prolonging his days. The will of the Lord is prospering his hand. Yet, we've just accounted him cut off, made buried, put in a grave, crushed. And then we're told that God says, I'll divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the portion with the strong. That's language to a general who wins a battle. And the one who wins the battle, now he's, he's in charge and he gets to divide up the spoils and he's saying, the king of kings, the general, he's gonna divide the spoils with us and we get to share in his victory, victory spoils. Now how can you share in victory spoils if you're dead? Because Isaiah 53, 12 screams Resurrection. So that Daniel 7, Old Testament is true. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is that talking about? Well, Jesus claims that passage for himself. The Son of Man is Jesus. And to him is given dominion and glory and kingdom when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection. I was listening to a sermon recently by Sinclair Ferguson. He's excellent to listen to, by the way. If you're ever looking for a good preacher to listen to, he's good. And he was talking about when he was a young man and he was first in the ministry and he was preaching the gospel and after the service, you're shaking hands with people in the back and a guy came who was a brand new believer and the guy said to him in his zeal, he said, you know, even if Jesus wasn't the son of God, I would still be here. I just love the church and I love being here. And he shakes his hand and moves on and Sinclair Ferguson was so like dumbfounded by what he just said that he didn't know how to respond. And he said that that quote has haunted him through the years. He's just reflected on that. Even if Jesus isn't the son of God, I would still be here. I love this church, love being here, and yet he was claiming to be a believer. Now, children, what do you think about that? If Jesus isn't the son of God, what are we doing here? Professing these truths. 
Paul said, if these things aren't true, we're to be pitied above all men. We're to be pitied above all men because we're suffering for this. You could be sleeping in. You could be playing golf. You could be watching whatever you wanted to watch. You could be riding your bike. You could be enjoying all kinds of stuff. And instead you're here and, and the people are worshiping Jesus Christ because they're convinced that yes, he is the son of God and that he died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he's coming again. So that statement doesn't make any sense. And see, the apostle Paul doesn't just ground his argument in the Old Testament scriptures, he then gives six proofs to remind us you know, is this just something that happened in the scriptures and the scriptures talk about it? He says, wait a minute. He appeared to Peter, he appeared to Cephas. Then he says, then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. That would be like a big footnote. MLS, standard. Go check it yourself because most of them are still alive. That's the apostle Paul's proving that 500 brothers saw him at one time after he was raised. You see, when you, when you got like uh, Muhammad and Joseph Smith telling you that an angel appeared to them, compelled them, it's always alone. You just gotta trust me on this, but there are no witnesses. There are witnesses, and they're writing way too soon from the same place. And so he's saying 500 brothers saw him. Then he appeared to James. James was Jesus' brother who didn't, who didn't believe him. And yet after the resurrection, he sees Jesus and he believes. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then last of all, Paul says he appeared to me. He gives six proofs. You see, some people, they don't believe and they say this, this is just too good to be true. And they come up with these different theories. And, he, and you've heard some of these theories, but one of those is, you know, they don't think he really died, that Jesus didn't really die. Or, and then there's this other one that the women went to the wrong tomb. They were just mistaken. And the disciples, well, they went to the wrong tomb as well. Or that the disciples stole the body. The problem is, is there are big problems with each of these conclusions. Think about it. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, then all four of the gospel writers fabricated and told a lie. And they told a lie that would have been challenged because of all the numerous witnesses who saw Jesus' death and they didn't dispute the gospel writer's testimony. Nobody ever doubted the historicity of Jesus' death. Nowhere do we ever see that that's up for debate. After Jesus died, a spear was rammed into his side to verify that he's dead, dead. And out came blood and water everywhere to confirm that he suffocated as his lungs were completely full of blood and water. And Joseph of Arimathea asked for his body and Joseph was provided the body so he could be put in a tomb where he was buried. He was not only buried, but Roman soldiers sealed the tomb with a huge rock and they guarded the tomb. And so if the women who came to the tomb got the tomb mixed up 
And the disciples got confused as well in the early morning because it you know, wasn't completely light yet. What would be the easiest way in the world to shut these disciples up and to shut these women up? They're declaring that there's an empty tomb and that they have, not only is there an empty tomb, but that they have resurrection appearances, that they've encountered him. How do you shut these people up? It's very simple. Children, what do you need to do? If you're Detective John on the scene, what do you do? All you gotta do is one thing. Just go and get the body, go pull up the body. If we find a bone of Jesus, we're out of here. If Jesus' bones are ever discovered, we have no faith. We have nothing. Find one bone, prove it's Jesus' bone, and it's over. Just find the body. But instead, we have positive news from a hostile source. Positive news from a hostile source. The hostile source doesn't want anything to do with this and they have to come up with an admission that they stole the body because you ain't got no empty tomb. Couldn't find it. So it's, a, it's an admission of way too much. It professes way too much that we have an empty, we couldn't find it. We tried to shut them up, and the only thing we could come up with is that the disciples stole the body. And so Thomas Aquinas, the theologian from the Middle Ages, said, the alternative is to believe in a greater, in a greater miracle is to believe that the world was converted by the greatest lie in the whole world. That actually, that's a greater miracle to believe that. You've got to have an incredible amount of faith to believe that. You see... One of the difficult things about death, and that's something that we'll all experience, and what's really sad as you get older is sometimes people die and they're not reconciled to one another. And before one person dies, they have to live with the fact that they haven't made peace with somebody. And they're not really sure if forgiveness was ever realized. Well, this didn't happen with Jesus and the disciples. You see, you had all these people, like Peter, that had denied Jesus three times. Remember, we're told, Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus and Peter have this eye contact, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. And my point in sharing this is that when Jesus rose from the grave, we know for certain that reconciliation has actually happened that we know that sins have been forgiven, that there's this exchange. Listen to what Luke says in the, in the last resurrection appearance in Luke 24. Luke says this, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, peace to you. But they're startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. 
And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. What were they to go and tell? They were to go and tell that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Well, how could they do that? Because they themselves had had their sins forgiven. They themselves had been pardoned. And Jesus shows up and says, peace to you, because he has forgiven them. He has paid their debt, and now he has been raised from the dead, and he comes in such tender affection to love his disciples. That's how he comes to us who believe. You see how this is good news? Your biggest problem that you'll ever face in this life is your sin. And your sin and the result of that is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the best news going. This is the best news. And lastly, it changes sinners into saints. Look at verse 9 and 10. Paul's lamenting his past. As many of us are like, man, that sounds great. Pastor Charlie, I appreciate what you're telling me, but you don't know the stuff I've done. You don't know the stuff that I've, I've been involved in. And God could never forgive my sin. My sin's too big. Well, that's how the enemy works. He wants you to think that, that one, you don't have anything that really needs to be forgiven and you don't really need Jesus. And then he wants to knock you down and like man not only are you a sinner you're the worst ever and you never deserve forgiveness one or two extremes and Paul says I'm the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God think about this Paul had to live with the fact that he killed people who loved Jesus he had heard their screams. His eyes had made eye contact as tears were rolling down their faces and he was responsible giving the nod of the head, yes, for their death. Paul was guilty of murder of Christians and he had to go to bed at night with that thought on his mind. So how is Paul able to live with that? Verse 10. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Present tense. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace in Paul's life not only provided forgiveness, but grace is this idea of power to live the Christian life. It didn't make him lazy. It didn't lead to loosey-goosey living. It, wasn't, it was forgiveness of sins, but grace was primarily the power of God at work in us to conform us to the image of his son. And so if you understand the gospel, you believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead, then it's gonna be changing your life now in the present because it's all of a sudden putting you on a trajectory of being conformed to the image of Jesus that now you're gonna hold fast to the word 
and not believe in vain that it wouldn't have any consequence because if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, nothing else matters. Where do you land on that crucial position? Do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And if so, have you believed in such a way that now you're like Paul? You're saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm no longer what I was. Though we are unworthy, we give him all the praise. And now we work and live for him. Let's pray together. Lord, there is none like you. You have done what nobody else could do. We thank you as a perfect human. You lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we should have died. We thank you for this good news that has come to us, and I pray it would lead to more and more joy, more and more of our contagious sharing of this good news, that we'd not be ashamed of it, that we would remind the enemy of it, that we would remember that our sins have been forgiven, and that we would come with great boldness to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.